Welcome back to Ghostly Talk. This is Scott L. This is Amber. And, you know, we I've been saying this the last couple of weeks. I want to say it again very briefly. If you're listening to our show right now, thank you. Amber and I really appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to our show. It, it means a lot to us. So thank you as the person who listens to our show. Thank you so much. Uh, one other quick thing before we get to what happened here tonight. Uh, Ghostly Talk is going to be at the 30th annual Motor City Comic Con this weekend with our, the other well, the other show that I'm a part of, it's called Real Crime, uh, which is about movies and stuff like that. Uh, both of our shows are going to have our own table at the 30th annual Motor City Comic Con this weekend. And it's out at the Suburban Collection Showplace in Novi, Michigan. We'll be out there recording interviews, hanging out, talking to anybody. We don't care. We want to talk to everybody, as many people as we can. So we're going to have all the gear out there all weekend, which is May 17th, May 18th, and May 19th. We're all going to be out there hanging out. Please, if you see us, come by. Come by say hello. Talk to us. We'd love to. We'd love to talk to you. We have stickers. Yeah, we have stickers. And you can meet George Takai for sixty dollars. <laughs> for sixty dollars. Was that what? How much it was? Yeah, we're free. <laughs> I don't know, man. That's like maybe we should charge a penny. Have a penny jar. This this topic <laughs> has come up a couple of times as far as George Takai and whether we should meet him or not. Um, I don't know what, what, what liberties we have, like being part of uh, a part of the con. Uh, but God, I would like to at least shake his hand. Yeah, it'd be, it'd be cool to meet people and not have to stand in line and actually pay. Although I know that's how they make their living, especially people who are yeah. not really showing up in things anymore. Like George, I mean, I don't know. Well, he, I don't know if he's acting or anything like that. But that's, he shows he's still, they signed some of these. Like still do like the Facebook posts and stuff. Oh, I'm sure his? he does. He's got a huge Facebook following. Oh, boy. Yeah, yeah. And he, I, I he, love that. Yeah, he's guy. funny. He rules so hard, man. And I mean, I love you know Star Trek came up a lot tonight too. Yeah, it did. It's, it's, it did. It's topical. You can tell that that's influenced uh, Mike a lot. Yeah, I mean, it's well. I mean, I think it influenced a lot of us as far as our forward well, thinking and, a, and our, our idea no, to dream and Star think. Star Trek. I think more than Star Wars. Did we say Star Wars? No, 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 no. But okay. I was just thinking about them, just differentiating the two. I think Star Trek. People have been able to pull from episodes of Star Trek and say, like, wow, that's actually become true. It, well, it's some, or it can, that's that, a or possibility. That can yeah, exactly. Yeah. Star Wars has always been more fantasy. I've always considered that more of a yeah, fantasy type thing. Yeah. Star Trek's always been more hard sci fi. Yeah. And like the whole, like, little, like, the beep thing, their little pin, their cute pin. Yeah. Tricorder. Oh, is that what it was called? Yeah. So it's kind of like our cell phones. I mean, where you can just blah, blah, well, not even can, that. I mean, they have up. they they had their actually no. That was no, an that, early that uh, was uh, uh, shit. That, the thing the thing that used to be that was annoying. Those things, the, the chirper, the, yeah, the two way, yeah, the two way, the Nextel thing, yes, the Nextel Nextel. things. But no, the actual like tricorder That's was early Nextel. I think the tricorder actually was the thing they'd walk around with in you know the original. No, that series. analyzed stuff. No, they had a tricorder though too. That the, the thing on their. On their chest, you know, and I should know this stuff, but yeah, the thing they had on their chest, I forgot what that was. Somebody well, sent me an email and let me and remind me of this. But uh, the tricorder is literally what we have for our hand, you know, our handheld devices now. I mean, oh, yeah, I mean, really, you think about that, uh, yeah, this could happen. Well, it has happened, and Star Trek is it, it really is the more hard sci fi thing. What? Well, and there's that we got to go to the to give them a plug because it's a museum and I love museums, yeah, the uh. Shoot, my brain is fried tonight when it comes to remembering things. You said they're Henry Ford. 
Was it the, is that the, Henry, the, is that the one Ford, in Dearborn? The one in Dearborn. Okay, yeah. so in Dearborn, Michigan, there is a Star Trek exhibit with uh, like clothing and, and artifacts from the show. Which I want to get out for stuff. that. I got to look that up and see when it's going to be happening. Yeah. So well, we really should get out there and yeah, check that out. Yeah, they have Kennedy's assassination car there too. Yeah. Uh, like the actual yeah, car, it's not Kennedy that far was shot from us. We no, just have to get not. it's under an hour. We just have to get a couple hours together to go out there and look at this stuff. So yeah, Motor City Comic Cons is happening this weekend. Again, if you see us, come on by, say hello. We'd love to talk to you. Uh, so we talked to a gentleman named Mike Beaver tonight, uh, and this was one of them real special conversations to me that, that we have on on this show. Uh, and sometimes I just want to sit back and listen to someone's story. Right. I mean, conversations are weird like that. Sometimes, you know, it isn't always a give and take or a back and forth. Sometimes it's somebody, you know, I just want to hear what someone has to say. And that's really what we had with 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 Mike tonight was uh, listening to a gentleman tell a story or tell several stories about his experiences with a lot of things. And we're talking about a man who's, who's lived a charmed life. In my opinion, he's been everywhere. He's worked as a stunt man. He's worked in it his entire life. He's a hypnotherapist. I mean, this gentleman has been everywhere and done everything. He's, he, you know, he's been to South America. Uh, he's been all over the, he's been all over the world. And he's done all these things and he's, he's brought a lot of stories to talk about. So, Sometimes you just have to sit down and listen to what a person says. And I'm really glad that's what we did with Mike Beaver tonight. Hope you enjoy. Coming out of a bunker in Michigan, go sit talk, he's in your ears again. Mike Beaver, I just want to say, first off, thank you for joining us tonight. Um, I, we're all really busy. We were kind of talking here a few minutes ago about being busy in our young lives and our, and I know especially in our older lives, so I do appreciate you taking some time to come on the show here and chat with us. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, and I want to thank you right off the bat for having me on the show. Yes, uh, it's it's a pleasure. Uh, you know, and we were looking, as we were talking a few minutes ago here, um, I was kind of looking over some stuff here, and... The first thing I want to I want to talk about is you 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 talk about that you have two attaching spirits. Uh, yeah, they're demonic. Well, wh- how do you know they're dim- they're demonic? Uh well, okay. So the first uh, way I know is I was sitting across from. I mean, I could spend all night on that answer, but uh, <laughs> the very first uh, quick answer is. I was sitting across the table from a girl. I used to go to these parties. This girl had out-of-body parties, and we would lay on lay on our backs, close our eyes, okay. and we'd listen to Robert Monroe's tapes to try to get out of our bodies. I never succeeded at that. At that, though, it, within that context, I have gotten halfway out of my body, scared the you know what out of me. But uh, I've never been one of those persons who was able to get out of the body easily or in any fashion. Uh, on on demand, but mm-hmm. so anyway, we're sitting across the table, uh, this card table. I, I was sitting across from this girl that had these parties, 
And she looked at me and she said, uh, you know you have an imp jumping around on the top of your head. And at the time it was jumping around the top of my head. So I'd already known, already knew about its presence long before she mentioned anything. Yeah. But the fact that she accurately described that it was jumping around when it was uh, suggested strongly to me that she could actually see it as opposed to just making something up. So that's the first uh, event that gave me some idea of what it was. Okay. I, I don't remember anybody else seeing one on the top of my head, though I know other people have. I just can't re recall those events. However, I was also, another event, I was sitting on a, um, a cement floor in a jail in the, uh, the Justice Center in Portland, Oregon. I was in a jail cell, and, and my, room, my cellmate was sitting on the lower bunk, and I was doing, I was doing yoga, meditation, and uh, Kriya yoga, and I, had, I was in semi-lotus position, yeah, and I bowed forward and about I moved side to side while I was bowed, and I would come up and I would circulate the the chi, the subtle energy in my through my chakras, and um, at the end of my um, at the end of the yoga, I fin finally finished and I looked over at the my cellmate who was sitting on that bottom bunk and he looked at me and he said, you know, you have a demon sticking its tail in your back. And, you know, when the girl said what she said previously, I'd already known about the one in my head prior to her saying anything. But I wasn't aware of the one on my back before he said something. So what I did was I moved my awareness to my back, and I, and I uh, instantly, uh, you know, picked up, of course, the sharp pain that the, the spirit was, cause, uh, was causing in my back. And I could feel energy signature of the spirit sitting on the surface of my skin around that pain so noticing both the pain thinking that pain many years was just normal back pain at that moment i noticed this you know noticing the energy around the sharp pain that came it kind of gave me an idea that it wasn't just normal back pain and similarly i was sitting on a, uh, an airplane and i was talking to a lady and, you know, I was trying to tell her the difference between uh, attaching spirit symptoms and regular symptoms. I said to her, uh, we're talking about, you know, uh, pain in your back. And I said, you know, if you have pain in your back and it moves around, that's an attaching spirit. If it stays in one spot, then it's normal back pain. And she said, well, it's normal for, it's normal for back pain to move around. And I, I almost started laughing, you know, because it's not. And so the symptoms of attaching spirits on your body, they sit on the surface of your skin, penetrate your body, okay. and are, of course, beyond your body. But they, the symptoms are different uh, from normal. Normal back pain stays in one position. Attaching spirit back pain moves around. Uh, similarly, the one on my head, who's all, which is always present, if I stick my hand where it's sitting, uh, it goes away. The back, the pain, the headache. If it's causing, if it's causing me pain, and it's not always doing that, but if it is, the pain goes away immediately. I take my hand off, it comes back. I put my hand on, it goes away. For some reason, it cannot penetrate my hand, and I really don't understand that because it can penetrate the rest of your body. So, in any case, uh, uh, head pain caused by attaching spirits is different from normal head pain. It's more localized. It's not as spread out. It feels different. It's uh, blocked by your hand sitting on your 
in that spot. Mm-hmm. And also, um, to further answer your question, I was um, working at the Air Force's largest medical facility. It's called Wilford Hall. It's in, it's on Lackland Air Force Base in San Antonio. And um, I there was a guy there who's far more technical than me. I won't give you his name or position okay. because his father was or is an exorcist. And when he was a child, he would help his father hold down people who were possessed so this father could exercise them. And one day we had a, uh, a lunch together in the dining facility or defac of that hospital. And uh, so we met in the dining facility. We shook hands and we sat down and we started talking about all kinds of esoteric spiritual stuff, which you don't normally get to talk with uh, military people about or anybody else <laughs> yeah. for that matter. And uh, during that conversation while we were eating our, me- our meal, he said, uh, the moment he shook my hand, he knew that I had attaching spirits. Now, there's no evidence from what he said that it's demonic, but I'm just giving you some various different pieces. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's probably the best. Um, you know, I've had all kinds of symptoms over the years, and none of that, you know, says demonic. It just says malevolence. Uh, like... Um, like my wife and I were riding bicycles in Portland, Oregon, and I was in a really good mood, and I was way ahead of her, and um, I was coming up to this bridge, and when I was approaching the bridge, my world uh, started becoming false. I was seeing a bridge in my mind, in my in my vision, in my you know, as I was riding the bike, but the the bridge I was seeing was not the real bridge. It was a fake reality, which I couldn't tell that it was fake. And so when I got up to the bridge, I slowed down, I stopped, and I tried to do a wheelie on the bike and lift the front tire up on this surface that I thought was existed six inches off the ground, six or eight inches off the ground. Mm-hmm. Well, there was no such surface. The, the bridge itself had no elevation to it. Uh, you just dry, keep riding on on this little side road side piece to it and so i was seeing a totally false reality fed to me by my attaching spirit sitting on my head and when i lifted the bike the right at the moment where the where i lifted the tire there was a um like a um uh, a um like an earthquake had shifted the ground part of the ground that i was reaching was like a quarter of an inch or half an inch higher than the ground that I was riding on because the it had just separated because of some earthquake. And so when I pulled up on the bike, I was expecting the tire, tire to come up about a half an inch off the ground or an inch or two, and then I was going to bounce off the surface that didn't exist. Well, because of the difference between the two surface heights, uh, my tire actually flipped, you know, the whole bike uh came all the way up mm-hmm. to where it was straight up and down. And I could have, the bike wasn't moving at this point. It was basically stationary. And I could have just taken my feet off of the pedals and stood up. But it caught, the fact that the bike came all the way up caught me off guard. And I was like kind of stunned mentally. And I didn't take my feet off the pedals. And so I, the bike started leaning to the right. And it, it fell up against a 
one-inch square wooden pole sticking out of the ground, and it pinned my feet between the pedals and the and the pole. Mm-hmm. And my my body kept fa- falling to the right, the rest of my body except for my feet. My feet were stuck on the pe- pedals. The bike is stuck up in the air. It's leaning against this pole, and my upper body keeps falling to the right, hits the pavement or the cement really hard, mm-hmm. and breaks my right hip. Now that was that event was caused by my attaching spirit sitting on my head, and uh, it knew right the right moment to give me a false reality. Well, here what I wanted to ask you, as I, I as you were telling this story about with, with the bicycle, all these things that happened. I'm curious, how long of a time span did that all happen in? Like you, you, you. you the description of what happened here. How long did all this stuff take to transpire? Well, um, to get my attaching spirits, first of all, I have to tell you how I got them. Okay, so you're, well, you're what, talking about what I was talking years. Yeah, what I'm talking about though is this, is the bike ride that you were on with your wife, right? You know, all these things that happened in that one situation. I mean, how long of a time span was that? Was, it, was that seconds? Was that minutes? Well, when I started getting fed the false reality. That whole, from the moment it started happening to the moment that my hip was broken was probably less than two minutes. And, that, and that's, you know, I mean, these things, these things that happen like this, they seem to be quick like that. I mean, a lot of things happen in such a short amount of time. It's kind of fascinating. And, you know, people go through things like this, whether, you know, whether they're otherworldly or whether they're just worldly things. And it seems like time slows down for a person like for example, and this is going to be a little bit kind of kind of crazy, but a good friend of ours, uh, a friend of mine, he actually lost a part of his hand um, on, a, on a saw machine. He works at a sawmill, right? And this just happened a few months ago. And, you know, we got the news and it was horrible. And, you know, they actually got his, he's, he's in recovery. He, they put his hand back on. So there's actually, a, there's a happy ending to the story. But when him and I had this conversation about it, he wanted to tell me all about it, right? And he's like, man, he's like, when my hand got stuck in the machine, it's like everything just slowed down. Like, I don't know what happened. But he's like, literally, this all happened within, you know, it's a much shorter time span. He said, this literally happened within about 10 to 15 seconds. There's my hand gone, (laughs) you know. Uh, He's like, but now when I replayed in my mind, he's like, it feels like an eternity to me. Like, there's all the, you know, going over and over and over again. Um, And, you know, I mean... I'm not trying to take us too far in the weeds off of this thing, but I was kind of thinking of like, you know, there's a lot of stuff that happened and that's that one situation for you. Uh, and it just seems, it's amazing to, to go through that. I think in such a short amount of time, do you follow what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. You know, and, and the other thing too, as you were talking in regards to attaching spirits, I'm going through a funny thing right now. And this is actually, I was thinking about this the entire time you were telling me about the back pain, and then you did to start talking about head pain, because I, uh, what's it been about two months now? I've had this problem, Amber. Um, I've had this, like it's not really throbbing anymore, uh, but it's been this weird pain in my right temple. Right? I'm not asking for any diagnoses here either, but I'm just right. thinking about this though. Um, I've had this; it just kind of came out of nowhere. I started getting this weird pain in my right temple, and then I started getting a twitching sensation in my right temple also. And this has been going on for a while. I've had I've had examination after examination. I had a CAT scan done, which they said, you know, it's 
whatever's in my head's benign. So I'm kind of wondering, you know, I'm not jumping to, you know, this this immediately, but hearing what you have to say about this, it, it's kind of interesting. Like maybe something, you know, there's a demon attached to me. I don't know. Well, my belief is that pretty much all humans have two or more attaching spirits. Okay. And that, you know, like a third may have had it in the past, a third may have it now, and a third may have it in the future. But um, I've had, uh, okay, so I, I need to jump. There's a couple different directions I can go. Sure. Uh, I can tell you about the times I've seen where I knew that other people had attaching spirits. There's like half a dozen of those. Or I can go to where I explain how I know how I got mine. Which which one do you want to hear first? Let's talk about the latter. I'm curious about that. Okay, so I was living in again in Portland, Oregon. My wife and I were there, and uh, we somehow I came across this lady who thought she had some healing power. She did not, but um, basically we were living in Portland. And she lived with her husband in southern Oregon, or mid-Oregon. And uh, Portland is up near the northern border with Washington State. So it borders the river that cuts those two states apart. So anyway, we went down to her uh, ranch, her husband's uh, you know, piece of land, and we walked into their double-wide uh, mobile home. And she and her husband were sitting there, and she looked at me. And before we even sat down, or maybe after we sat down, I don't remember which it was, she looked at me and she pointed her finger and she said, you're healed. And I was like, in my head, I was like, you're, you're an idiot. <laughs> and, you know, it, it wasn't a very nice thing to think about her, yeah. but it was just, you know, something that happened. Anyway, um, she wasn't trying to fool me or anything. She really did or does feel that she has uh, an ability to heal, but... Uh, I didn't think so after she did that. But anyway, so we were nice and uh, polite and rode their motorcycles, this and that. And uh, then we left towards the end of the day or later on in the day. And she called me uh, two, three, six weeks later. And she said, I talked to my psychic friend about your problem. And she said, you got your problem from smoking, but I never saw you smoke. Do you smoke? And, of course, she assumed her friend was talking about cigarettes because she didn't say what. Yeah. And I said, uh, I've never smoked cigarettes, and I don't smoke pot now, but I stayed high from uh, morning, noon, and night from the age of 16 to the age of 34 for 18 years until I kicked the habit. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yes, I smoked, but I don't now. And I never smoked cigarettes. So that's how I found out that I got it from smoking pot because her psychic friend who I never even met told her, uh, I got it from smoking. So, um, anyway, the other piece was, uh, seeing people who have them and yeah. that, what, did you have a question? You no, no, no. Yeah. I'm, I'm sorry. No, go ahead. Okay. So, uh, the only time I've seen an attaching spirit from a human, the, the spirit itself, was I was in uh, Manassas, Virginia. I was in a courtyard of uh, an apartment complex. I lived there. Um, and um, this lady was standing about six feet, six to eight feet from me. And her attaching spirit came straight up off her body, straight 
like like he was going to shoot up in the sky. He came up to where it was out of her body and then started moving at me very quickly. And uh, it kind of looked, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't solid looking. It was more like uh, barely visible, but I, it's kind of hard to describe because how do you describe something that isn't physical, that doesn't, that doesn't appear to be solid? It's kind of hard to describe, but it looked, it looked sort of like you would think of a genie, not I dream of genie, but the genie that comes out of the bottle, the big, the big male that's oversized and maybe slightly, uh, you know, not so nice. Mm -hmm. Well, I got quite a bit of malevolence from this thing just from in that instant. And I knew it was not a, a nice being. I don't know if it was a gin or a demon. I don't know what it was, but it was not nice, whatever it was. And it, when it started moving at me, I immediately started moving back and almost fell down because I was moving back so quick. It only took one step back and it was gone, disappeared instantly. It wasn't there for more than five, probably about five seconds. And uh, so that's the only time I've ever actually seen an attaching spirit of a person. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, within that same courtyard, uh, or, or that complex, in one of the courtyards of that same complex, there was a girl, a young, uh, very young girl, of, I don't know, she was five or six years old at the most, and uh, she was holding a, a uh, okay, I got to back up. Mm -hmm. So um, I went to Peru to uh, drink ayahuasca. Actually, I went to Peru for tax purposes. Uh, I was working in a, I worked in Afghanistan several times, and one of those times, to get tax uh, breaks, you have to, you you get tax-free earnings up to eighty-three thousand, but the catch is you have to be over out of the country for um, two hundred and let's see, what is it, three hundred sixty days, three. There's 320, how many days are there in a year? 360? 365. 365. Okay, you have to be out of the country for 320 days of the year to get the tax benefit. So I got terminated um, like um, maybe 16 days short of what I had to be out of the country. So I came, when I got terminated, I came back in the country and I said to my wife, let's go to Canada. Or I wanted to go to Greece with her, but she never would go to Greece. <laughs> But then I said, well, let's go to Canada, and she wouldn't do that either. All right. So, um, so uh, I went to Peru for 19 days for tax purposes. And during that time, I took I did ayahuasca three times. Now, let's, let's, let's back up here. Let's pump the brakes here. Can you, you know, I don't even know what the heck. What, what is ayahuasca? I'm gonna... um, it's, a, it's, a, uh, it's a brew that's concocted in the Amazon rainforest within countries like Brazil and Peru okay. and one or two other countries. I went to Iquitos, Peru. Iquitos, Peru is the largest city in the Amazon rainforest in any country. So about six miles outside of Iquitos, I was at a uh, compound, did the ayahuasca twice. And I left that compound, went back to the city, and then uh, was still wanting an exorcism. And I don't know why I thought that ayahuasca could help me with this. It was really a stupid idea. But uh, I went to a second compound, had ayahuasca a third time. And um, so anyway, the reason why I mention all that is because 
uh, ayahuasca uh, breaks down the barriers, some of the barriers that keep spirits from attacking you. Now, uh, I actually have to back up again. Sure. Because uh, it, the way I got my attaching spirits, I told you, is marijuana, right? So if you smoke pot, cigarettes, uh, do al alcohol uh, to addiction, uh, take legal drugs and illegal drugs, any of these five can break down the art barriers around your body and allow you uh, spirits to attach to you. That's how I got my attaching spirits. However, hallucinogens uh, tend to break down, or some hallucinogens break down the barrier that you have other barriers that are beyond the art barrier that's immediately around your body. The other barriers you have are um, much further away from your body that are like beyond the the walls of the room you're in. They're, they're further away. Okay. So um, ayahuasca and other hallucinogens break down those barriers. And so um, because of that, you become more psychic. And, uh, and you can see things that that uh, psychics would see. Uh, the girl that saw my attaching spirit on my head, she could see attaching spirits and angels and different spirits all of her life. And other people, they get abducted and they'll put a, some of the aliens will put a, 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 a thing over their head and they'll see these images that are not very, they're, they're dark images of malevolent spirits and stuff. And that will cause them to uh, become more psychic. And there's all kinds of ways to become more psychic. You can be born with it. You can get it from through other, different means. Anyway, when you do the ayahuasca, ayahuasca it, it opens you up for, it opened me up for like two years. And I could see, um, like, what I was about to tell you about the little girl, mm -hmm. the one I just told you about the lady whose spirit came off of her, those uh the reason why I was able to see those is not because I'm more psychic than you or anybody else. I am somewhat psychic, but not that psychic. And so doing the ayahuasca opened me up to where I could, was more psychic. But it's, it's not psychic like, um, if I tell you I'm more psychic or like a psychic, it really doesn't do justice to, the, to what it actually does to you. What really happens is uh, you can see those things, but... Um, those things can also see you. So it's a two-way street. So like my wife and I would be laying in bed trying to go to sleep and uh, our dogs sleep in the bed with us. And while, we, while I was open during that two years, there was this one event I, that reminds me of this. That I, so I'll tell you is that to give you an idea, it's not just in my head, mm -hmm. is that we heard like, like somebody set off a, a very loud firecracker or a small, very small grenade in my living room. It's a really loud explosion. And uh, the dogs jump up and they're like barking their heads off. And so uh, I walk in the living room and there's nothing in the living room. It's just like, so, but we would hear like, my wife and I have heard rapping where ghosts rap. You know, they knock on the wall, they'll go up the wall and onto the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So we've heard rapping and just normal ghost type stuff all as long as we've been with with each other mm -hmm. and so but this was what i'm talking about is a little more than that it's a little more it, it, i was uh, spiritually attacked 
quite a bit in that apartment, and that was because I was open uh, more to seeing those things, and they were open to seeing me. So let's go back to the the uh, little girl with the what she had was she had a little puppy. Uh, it was a bulldog puppy uh, that she that was barking at me. It was wanting to bite me. Or it was all angry, and I don't know what was that caused the attitude of the dog, but. She was hanging on to this dog for dear life because she was such a little girl. And I could see her eyes moving around. I was looking at her uh, as a result of having done the ayahuasca. I could see people had, I could see who had attaching spirits and who didn't have attaching spirits. Mm -hmm. But it was, I wasn't seeing the attaching spirits directly. I was seeing the symptoms of the attaching spirits. So it was the same symptom, but it wasn't the attaching spirit directly. Okay. So with her, I was seeing her eyes move around really quick in her head. And obviously her physical eyes are not doing that, but her astral body or whatever you want to call that, one of the extra bodies you have was doing that. To me, it looked like her physical body. It wasn't an extra body, but uh, I, I just knew logically that it wasn't her, eye, her real eyes doing it. It was the other part of her that, that's beyond the physical. Okay. So her eyes are moving around really fast, right? Okay, so then um, similarly... I was on the street uh, one day, and everybody on the street was like that. I mean, literally everybody. And then there was another event where I was in a, uh, I was in a uh, jail uh, in uh, Manassas, and uh, all the policemen were like that. Every single cop, his, their eyes were doing that. And another event, I was. Uh, in a courtroom uh, building outside the courtroom and sitting in a bench, a wooden bench, and I was looking around and about one-third of the people in the room were like that, with their eyes moving around. And I knew intuitively that everybody who had their eyes moving around, those were the people who were, who were uh, accused of committing crimes, and the people who did not have their eyes moving around were their relatives, their Sisters, brothers, children, parents, that sort of thing. Okay. So I knew who was who was going before the judge and who wasn't based on what I was seeing with their eyes. So um, those are examples of how I've seen who had attaching spirits and who didn't. So, well, going back here to, you know, I've often heard this idea of people who well, either they can be possessed or they can be, they can have an attaching spirit to them um, or they can become more sensitive or more psychic as, right. a, as a result of certain behaviors, which is what you've directly talked to, talked about here, uh, is this idea that if, you know, and I never heard about the smoking thing. I, I thought cigarettes were like the most useless drug, like nicotine's the most useless drug you can do. It didn't, don't really do anything for you whatsoever, uh, but kill you, <laughs> I guess. Um, but you're saying that that's included here with, with that, with marijuana, illegal and legal narcotics. These all, um, and, I, and I shouldn't lump that in with that'll make you more psychic. I think what you were saying with that piece of it here is, that that will that's where you could get this attachment you could be attached by a by a spirit as a result well, of that because your guard is down more or less right the, the the things that you do to addiction break down your art barriers and marijuana does not make you more psychic obviously 
But, yeah. uh, you know, all these things uh, break down your arc barrier and allow a spirit to attach to you. The only reason I know that is because the psychic who told my, uh, the lady that I mentioned before, that that's how I got my attaching spirits. That's the only way I know that. And I take the marijuana thing and just stretch it out to these other things. Yeah. Now, if you want to know about the, specifically about how attaching spirits and alcohol uh, relate, um, one of the, one of the things I would mention is that uh, George, you ever heard of a fellow named George Ritchie? Who was that? I'm sorry. George Ritchie. Uh, can't say I do. I'm sorry. Okay. He wrote a book called Return from Tomorrow. And uh, in that book, he mentions he had a, uh, an experience with a, with a spirit of light. He, I think he called it Christ, but it could have been a Christ-like being. But it was a spirit of light that took him in a, in a, um, in a journey like, not unlike the story Scrooge. He went to the past, he went to the present, and he went to the future. And the one part of the book that has relevance that I remember was he um, he went into he was taken into a bar, and he watched the people drinking at the bar, and he said they had attaching spirits sitting on the back of their heads at where basically where my attaching spirit uh, sits most often. Is at the cowlick. It's at the top of the back of your head, where the back of your head and the top of your head meet. And he said that's where the spirits attach to the people. And he mentioned that it was humans uh, who had died and still wanted to drink alcohol, so they went into the bar and attached themselves to people who drank, so that they could continue having that experience. And he he said he saw somebody pass out, and when they were passed out, a uh, human ghost. Uh, jumped into the person so that they could uh, drink in the future. So that's alcohol and uh, and attaching spirits. But yeah. but uh, there are a couple different notable people who um, do attachment spirit removals that kind of that kind of uh, think of them when we get to this point. Yeah. And uh, if you want, I'll speak about them for a minute. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I'd like to hear that, please. Okay, so uh, they are Shakuntala Modi. She's a psychiatrist. I once had her phone number. I don't know if I still got I probably still got it somewhere. She wrote a number of books, uh, two or three. One of them is, the first one was called Remarkable Healings. Um, uh, I don't have the, the full title, but that's mm. the, the base title. Um, she, her book, Remarkable Healings, that whole book is a series of conversations she had with like a dozen clients. Now, the conversations, uh, basically, that's uh, scripts from transcripts of conversations she had with the demons that were inside each person. And so at the beginning of the book, you'll see like, all the um, symptoms of a person. Then you have the first conversation she had, or the first session she had with that person. And then after that, you have um, the the symptoms that went away, the symptoms that remained, and the second uh, transcript with the second session with the same person. 
and then the third one, the fourth one. Yeah. And she had that with like a dozen people. And that's the whole book. It's just a bunch of conversations with demons attached to people. Now, on the other end of the spectrum, uh, you know, attaching spirits that humans get, they can be demons, they can be humans, they can be a whole bunch of different things. And so on the other end of the spectrum, you have people like Dr. Carl Wicklund. He was also a psychiatrist. He was the head of a, an insane asylum. And um, he used an electrostatic device called a Wimshurst machine. And if you touch a Wimshurst machine in the wrong, the wrong, in the wrong spot, it will kill you because the guy who invented part of that machine actually died from touching his own invention. Oh, no. But, but anyway, so Dr. Wicklund, of course, had a bunch of people who would be considered insane, and he would have them uh, stand in the middle of the room, and he would use this machine, and with the Wimshurst machine, you have to crank it. It's a series of uh, metal uh, uh, surfaces that are uh, t attached to a, um, a wheel, and when you crank it, it turns that wheel, and then it basically takes the static electricity, and it gathers it into these two little uh, devices that sit under glass. I forgot what they're called. But those are the things that killed the guy who invented them. And then he has these two leads, and he touches the lead to the, to the patient, and it's like, uh, it's like Tesla's uh, coil yeah. that had, uh, had like a million volts, but it was very low amperage, so he wouldn't feel the electricity. Very high voltage, very low amperage is, is safe. Mm. So that's what this was. The, the, the client wouldn't even feel the electricity, but the spirit inside of the client, would it would feel like they were... Uh, uh -oh. would feel, hold on just a second. No problem. Hold on. Okay. Uh, it would feel to the spirit that was attaching inside the person, it would feel like uh, fire. And so they would jump out of the person, out of the client, and hit, uh, Dr. Wicklin's wife was a psychic. Yeah. So she'd be, she'd be in trance on the other side of the room, and she would uh, the spirits would jump out of the client who he'd touched the leads from the Wimshurst machine too, and they would jump into her, his wife because she was a psychic and wasn't didn't have many barriers. Psychics have less barriers, so then the spirit would start talking through the her his wife, his wife and all the relatives who were there would start asking the spirit. Why did you get in my sister, brother, yeah. daughter, father? And, you know, they were getting this conversation. And then the spirit helpers at some point would help take the spirit into the light. And so. I was going to uh, say they couldn't. They, I don't think uh, she'd want to have that, sp that, that spirit with her permanently. I was going to say they probably have to move that spirit away somehow. No. They, yeah. The, the, the spirit helpers uh, would just take the spirit on. Okay. Uh, so, but um, it was something else I was going to tell you, but I forgot what it was. But um, well, you those, know, let me. Oh yeah, I know what it was. Okay, go ahead. Okay, so you, you know, you have two different ends of a spectrum. You have Chiunta Lamodi talking about demons, mm -hmm. and then you have Doctor Wickland. His two books, uh, which you can find on my website. If you are you on my website? Oh no, it's but it's called ProfoundStates.com, correct? Yeah, if you yeah. go there. And you click on uh, on the left side, you'll see a bunch of words mm -hmm. going down the left side of the page. It goes from A to Z. Mm -hmm. And if you scroll down to the D's, you'll see demons and attachments. 
And if you click on that link, you'll go to a page, and um, at the top, if you, you'll see words in green, Primary Malevolent Spirit Removal Resources. Yeah. Below that, there's Edgar Casey and the Violet Ray. Below that, there's featured videos. And then below that, there's featured books. Now, uh, the, the book I mentioned with uh, George Ritchie, Return from Tomorrow, that's the first book yeah. shown there. Now, the two immediately below that, 30 Years Among the Dead and The Gateway of Understanding, uh, those are free copies, or sort of free copies, on Google Books, um, or partial free copies. Yeah. Uh, the, those are books from uh, Dr. Carl Wickman. Then the book below it, Remarkable Healings of Psychiatrist Discoveries Unsuspected Roots of Mental and Physical Illness, is uh, Chikuntala Modi's first book. So those are um, some... Yeah, and that's at profoundstates.com. Uh, yeah, that's on the demon. And, you know, we always, you know, when we post these shows, we always make sure we put those links up there. So that'll be up for everybody to hit that link and, and check out what we were talking about. You know, sure. one thing, one thing I wanted to talk about, and I wanted to switch gears up a little bit here too, but I was, you were talking about the alcohol thing and, you know, alcohol and drugs, we all know what they do to people. Um, you know, I, I personally think, you know, I think there's a, there's a difference. There's use and abuse. I think most people have, you know, they can't just use something. They have to abuse it regardless. Um, you know, yeah, I think we all know people that have, have been in that, uh, the abuse, uh, spectrum of, of alcohol, especially I've known, known and know people in that condition right now. And, as you were talking about this, it just hit me. I was, you know, kind of picturing, you know, these people that I know and are known to and the condition they have or are, are in right now. And, you know, one thing I've always said, and one thing you always hear, too, is they're wrestling demons. I know it's kind of a cliche statement, but, you know, all this stuff kind of puts that in perspective that you're talking about, Mike. Uh, a lot of my friends, I look at them that way, you know, alcoholics it's like dude you gotta slow down here come on man and they got no life in them anymore like their soul it seems like their soul is kind of confused or there's something there's some type of fight inside them they're wrestling with things mentally um and you know while it may i i'm always willing and i would like to think too that you know this is real stuff real world stuff they may be scarred mentally somehow maybe there is this this other thing going on where you know through the addiction uh, for years, uh, maybe they, they have opened themselves up, unfortunately, to additional baggage to be on their back or on their head, literally on their head, <laughs> right? Uh, is that kind of, is that a fair assumption? Of, or I'm sorry, is that a fair observation of this, do you think, Mike? Well, yeah, uh, I would say yes. I don't, the, these symptoms of attaching spirits um, are, many and uh if you want i can get into that area there's there's in my book um instruments of control i split up the um symptoms of attaching spirits into a couple two or three different categories one being societal symptoms and one being personal symptoms but it's really kind of hard to split them up okay. but uh, if you want, I'll go down that road, or, or if you have a different road, you want. Well, to go down. you know, Amber. Well, Amber. Okay, well, go, ahead. Amber. You've been you've been sitting here patiently. <laughs> well, I when I was looking at Mike's bio and and our our questions for him. Yeah, yeah. 
UFOs came up on his list and having had personal experiences with seeing craft and also uh, close encounters yeah, where he yeah. maybe actually mingled with them. I would love to hear about those experiences, especially now UFOs are kind of, uh, they're coming back into vogue. They're back in style. Well, I mean. Like, they're they're on the walkway. I but... don't know. Okay, that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's one hell of a way to it's put it. True. Okay. It's true, though. It's true. They're enjoying a renaissance again where everything goes, you know, some one thing in the paranormal will be on the back burner than yeah, another thing. Yeah, Ghosts yeah. were so big for so long. And now UFOs have come back. So I, and because I've actually had UFO experiences myself, um, I, I'm just always really thrilled to hear about others' experiences and what they saw and felt. Well, you, it's, you, you've had two encounters, and I, you know, typically when we say, okay, you've had an encounter, it's most people describe, uh, you know, I guess they would describe, describe more of a singular being or maybe a couple of beings. But you've had encounters with, with alien races, two, two separate encounters, correct? So we're talking about races. Can you tell us some more about that? Okay, so um, are you familiar with the free report? I'm sorry? Are you familiar with the free report? No. No, no. Okay, so there's an astronaut who, there's an organization, I forgot what it stands for, but uh, just look up free report and aliens or UFOs, and you'll get some information. Uh, But uh, this report, it was basically a series of questions given to uh, experiencers and uh, contactees, abductees, and, uh, you know, people who call themselves experiencers. And they asked all these series of questions. Did the aliens, was it better for you, worse for you? Anyway, uh, one of the observations in that report uh, that I read was, the mo- even though you hear people talking about um reptilians and 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 grays and nordics and pleiadians and there's all these different races that people like to talk about but in that report the the type of alien that's most commonly encountered by humans is the kind of alien that would could walk amongst us and you wouldn't know the difference so uh, aliens that look exactly like us no differences of any kind that's the most common a commonly alien, common alien encountered by humans, according to that report. Okay. So, one of my encounters, um, I was. Um, you're familiar with uh, Virginia Tech, where the where the Oriental kid killed. Um, yeah, that was. If I'm correct, that was in. Oh man, and my memory's so bad now. It was a few years that, ago. No, that was in well, Virginia Tech. Yeah. Yeah, Virginia Tech. I thought that was like 2004, 2005. Okay, so I worked in an underground facility at the Radford Army Army Ammunition Plant. Okay, and uh, one of the one of the uh, only sources for TNT in the whole world, and so um, if not the only one. So, you know, you'd walk. I'd go to work and walk in the side of this hill, and you know, down a ramp, and uh, go into a, a door that looked kind of like uh, the door that appeared on. Uh, side of the mountain uh, from the move, the TV series Stargate was something similar to that. Okay. Anyway, while I was while I was working there at this facility, after I'd get off, I'd go home, change clothes real quick, uh, in shorts, and I would go over to Virginia Tech, and I would uh, go out in these huge fields, 
and uh, the, the kids would come out there, and uh, or the college kids, and they would play ultimate frisbee. Ultimate is a, a cross between football, basketball, and frisbee. It's played on a field like a football field. It's served off like football, but it's played like basketball. Anyway, while we're waiting for these games to get where the people would get formed up to the game, uh, I would start up just uh, tossing uh, back and forth between me and one of the one of the kids. And uh, one of these days I was doing that, and this kid was throwing Frisbee at me. And as soon as he released it, I knew that with the power he threw it, that it was going to go beyond my reach. Or, you know, I didn't know that instantly, but I pretty much kind of get an idea. Yeah, yeah. It was a strong throw. So I would turn around instantly and run uh, directly away from him as fast as I could. And the Frisbee would go just beyond my reach and hit the hit – the, uh, at the grass, which was very unusual for me because I pride myself on being able to run pretty good back in those days yeah. and being a pretty good Frisbee player. My uh, partner in Houston was three-time Texas State female Frisbee champion, and our other partner was a world champion, her other partner that I played with. Oh, wow. Alan. So anyway, uh, uh, the Frisbee would hit the grass. I would reach down, pick it up, and I would walk, walk back towards this guy, and I would throw it back to him, and he'd keep kept throwing it beyond my reach and I kept you know getting to it reaching down picking it up at one point I did that and I looked up and there was these women in bikinis laying on blankets on the ground like five foot from where I picked up the frisbee and I was like what because see while I'm throwing frisbee I'm when he releases the frisbee I don't watch the frisbee I immediately move my body to become one with the speed and direction of the Frisbee. But yeah. while I'm doing that, I'm looking around, constantly looking around in every direction as far as I can see to see if anybody's moving towards me so that I don't run into them and kill them. And so, you know, sometimes I'm throwing Frisbee in the field and I might have to jump over people to get the Frisbee. And so it's kind of a dangerous position the more, the more uh, people are in the field. And so there's no way anybody walked across this huge field and sat down anywhere near me without me seeing them. That's just impossible. I'm looking at these girls and I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Where'd you come from? <laughs> right. That's what I'm thinking. Where yeah. did you come from? And then he throws it through, you know, we throw back and forth three or four more times and I reach down, grab it and look up and expect the women to be seeing that they're gone. And I look around like where are they, they're not, they're not walking off anywhere. Where are they? And they're just totally gone. I mean, absolutely gone. And then three or four more throws, and they're back, maybe five or ten foot further back than they were, maybe ten foot, fifteen foot further back. But they're basically in a similar position, a little further back. And I'm like, I didn't see them walk up the first time, didn't see them walk off, didn't see them walk back. And then a few more throws, and they're gone again, totally gone. And, and there's no... There's no building anywhere near me. I mean, the the closest building is like a 15-minute walk, you know, or 10-minute walk. Okay. And uh, so there's no way they walked up twice. There's no way they walked off twice. So I knew that whole situation was an absolute impossibility. So I knew instantly there was something strange about these women, but I didn't even consciously think, oh, these are aliens. I didn't think about that until I rationalized it later on, days later, or maybe later that night. So okay. that was one of my encounters. Now, another one, I was, uh, so those are 
human-looking aliens. So another one was I was um, in Houston around the age of 18, and I back in those days I got into various New Age stuff. And in this one New Age regiment, uh, what they did was they gave us these crystal rocks. They were like a quarter the size of your thumb, and they were they were crystalline rocks, and they were supposed to be metaphysically charged uh, with energy. And so you would take one of them and strap it to like your left wrist, and uh, the other one you would stick in a glass and fill it full of water, and you would drink the glass, the water from that glass, all week long. So I did that for like a week. And at the end of that week, that glass of water started tasting pretty good. Okay. I started drinking that water like it was, uh, you know, like a booze at a frat party. <laughs> and, uh, so um, I, I sat my glass down and I got up. I felt all of a sudden I got like I felt really powerful. I got up and I stood up. Did, have you ever seen the movie Sidekicks? Oh, yeah. A long time ago. OK, well, I worked on that movie and I was directed by Aaron Norris on that movie, too. Okay. And uh, so anyway, in, in that movie, there's a scene where Chuck and the boy, who I was put in charge of his safety, uh, the first day I got on that set. Anyway, uh, in the movie, they stick their their one of their legs up in the up in the air, higher than their head, and they they do like a sidekick to a tall person, and then they spin and they do that kick over and over and over in a circle. I did something like that, except. Uh, instead of doing exactly that, I just stuck it up really high like that, and I started spinning really, really fast, like a like a skater uh, does on an ice rink. And I got really spinning really, really fast, to in total control. And then I slowed down and stopped, and I sat my foot down on the on the carpet. And right as I was doing this, this um, being came through the wall near my door. And uh, and it was invisible, but it was making a very uh, machine-like language, like a computer. And I don't remember exactly how the sound went, but it was just something I'll never forget. I couldn't see it, but intuitively I picked up it was there hovering, and I could hear the sound. And uh, when I set my foot down from, uh, from spinning, my... It's like the spirit of my body or my soul was very loose in my body. It's like I almost came out of my body. And I was um, kind of facing my couch. But, uh, and this thing moved from near the door across my room. It was on the opposite corner of the room, which was uh, to the left of the couch as I'm facing the couch. And... Um, and I can hear it in the back corner of this room, and I'm looking straight at it, yeah. and I'm I'm like passing out in slow motion. I'm I know I'm going to lose consciousness, so but but really slowly. So I I'm like uh, I move away from my couch and I lay down really quick. Uh, I I go down and I put my arms down on the carpet and I go to lay down on a. I actually put a pillow on the uh, carpet so that I can just lay down without, you know, hitting the carpet with my head because yeah. I know I'm passing out, right? So, because I'm getting really tired really, really quick. And so as my, I'm touching the carpet with my 
arms and hands and my lower body is already on the carpet and my upper body is like two or three foot off the carpet or maybe two foot foot and a half off the carpet and I'm still going down and I, I'm looking at this thing that's in the corner and I close my eyes with still looking in its direction and after I close my eyes it's you know how uh, on Star Trek where they uh, kick the spaceship into warp drive and yeah. it's like it's like all the stars go flying by yeah okay so this is what happened in the, inside my head it was like I was going really fast through this uh, spirit or or alien or whatever it was uh, like I was going forward in space really really fast and this ha this lasted for maybe five ten no more than 15 seconds yeah and, and it stopped and then I opened my eyes, and the whole, that was the it. That was the end of the event. So that's two of the events. And then uh, those are the only events I've had where I was close up to beings that I remember. Uh, now, I had two events in my childhood that were, I don't know if they were alien-related or not. They were kind of strange, but uh, I'll tell you those if you want. Please, or I, please, yeah. Okay, so I was sitting in my living room with, uh, my sister and my parents and uh, this guy pulls up the, our windows the the blinds or curtain I guess it was curtains uh, were parted on the uh, front windows and there's this long glass there uh, behind the couch and uh, and I look outside I asked my mother about this uh, and my sister and neither one of them remembers this event but in any case there, this guy parks his car. I don't know what kind of car it was, but he gets out. He walks around the back of his car and walks, uh, you know, from one side of his car to the other and kind of makes a U-turn around the car, walks up to the walkway and then takes a right and starts walking towards our house. And this guy was full-blooded Indian. So I'm uh, about 16th uh, Blackfoot, I think. Uh, and so... Um, I don't know how I knew he was full-blooded Indian because how can a six-year-old know what an Indian is? I mean, yeah. maybe I'm just looking in hindsight. But anyway, he was full-blooded Indian, and he walks straight up to the front door, and he opens this, pulls open the screen door, and I don't even remember if he knocked or something or not because my dad was already at the door by this time. He opens the door without hesitation, and the guy, you know, normally you go up to a stranger's house and you you start speaking while you're outside and if you're lucky they'll let you in otherwise you stay outside well this guy did not hesitate he didn't he probably didn't say a word while he was outside he did not hesitate he steps right into the house takes the two steps up or three steps and he's in the house he's in the between the door between the real regular door and the screen door which is already shut and I can see the top of his head, but I can't see his face, and that's where the that's where the 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 the, uh, the memory ends. I have no idea what happened after that moment, and that's really odd for that memory to just stop like that. Yeah. So, so the other event, similar in nature, I was in the living. I was in the kitchen with my mother, and I don't know what she was doing at the time, but uh, I'm standing there, and uh, we hear this like an owl sitting on the roof, and it's very loud. It's almost like it's in the room with us, and uh, it does its hoot, you know. And I said, oh, it's an owl on the roof. I'm going to go 
I say to my mother, I'm going to go look out, go out and look at the owl. And I start to, you know, do that. And she goes, no, don't, don't go out there. And I'm like, I, I, looking back, I think it's very odd for my mother to be afraid for me to go out and look at an owl because owls are not known for attacking people. So I was like looking back thinking, you know, why does she, why was she afraid of me going out to look at the owl? And, um, anyway, those are the two events uh, of my ch childhood. Go ahead. But Go ahead. anyway, so, uh, I've had, uh, several close encounters with craft in the sky. And the first one of those, uh, lasted for a while. It, it, it was like a one or two hour encounter. Okay. So, um, I came home from a party. I'd parked in my uh, mother's driveway, as at the uh, northwest corner of near the northwest corner of Clay and Gessner on a street called Colony Court, and um, in Houston, Texas. It was October third, nineteen eighty. I pulled up. I parked. I was very depressed. I was thinking about committing, committing suicide, and uh, and while I was sitting there, this the image of the craft appeared in my head. It was just a like a black hole with eight equidistant lights surrounding the black hole. It was turning very slowly and vibrating like a piece on a lathe that's off center. Yeah. And uh, it was only on in my head as a visual image for about a quarter of a second or maybe less than that, maybe a sixteenth of a second. Just long enough for me to see the movement. It came on three or four times in my head, went away, and I'm like, what was that? Yeah. And I sit there hanging out for a while trying to, uh, you know, just for a moment, trying to figure out what it was, and then I forgot about it, or stopped thinking about it, then forget about it, I stopped thinking about it, and I uh, was thinking about committing suicide, and uh, eventually I got the energy to get out of my car. So I got, out, I got out one leg at a time, it took me like five minutes just to get out of the car. Yeah. I had so little energy. Eventually I got out of the car, I, uh, the car went, the windows were rolled down and on the round Pontiac Le Mans. I turned uh, to look towards the back of the car south. And I looked up in the sky, and the craft I'd seen in my head was sitting there, turning. And I could see it from a side position. And I could see three lights, then four lights, then three lights, then four lights. And it would alternate between three and four lights, depending on the position it was in. And make a long story short, Basically, uh, it rose up two degrees, or it dropped two degrees very slowly, and I think, oh, they're going to land. Then it stops, slowly raises up four degrees. I think, oh, they're going to land, uh, and then they're going to take off. And then it goes up to a certain point and stops, and it comes back down to the middle where, where it started. And I'm like, uh, thinking logically, I'm like, oh, they're going to land, and they're going to take off. Oh, you want to take me with you? I logically deduce what they want. Yeah. From movements of the crap and so I said okay well so how do we do this because I was ready to go and so because uh, I'd, I'd gone out uh, nights and one and called for them to come down and get me for a year and you know they never showed up and I'm like you know you're thinking about actually leaving the planet but in a different manner and they do show up so anyway uh, I think that's why they did show up because I was ready to leave in a different manner so anyway uh, I said well what do we do next and so they very slowly moved over this field to the right and back in front of me. But they did it in a very odd manner. They, the craft stayed level, but it moved up at a 45-degree angle. 
to a point very slowly and then moved down at a 45 degree angle. And it made a sawtooth motion very, very slowly uh, out over this field and did the same thing coming back in front of me. Yeah. You could have taken a line and drawn uh, at the bottom and the top of these points across the sky because they were exactly the same all the way across the sky. It had total control of itself. Anyway, uh, it got back in front of me and I said, oh, you want to go out in this field? So I walked down the driveway or actually uh, before I did that, I turned around. Ah, I missed a, missed a piece. Okay, when I first saw them, I thought I was hallucinating. So I turned, I figured, well, they'll go away. So I turn around, I roll up my window on the left door, I reach in, I, I actually get on my knees in the car, reach across, roll up the window that, on the right side, lock that door, I move back, I look at the clock, it says 11.00, exactly 11 o'clock, October 3rd, 1980. Okay. I get out of the car, shut the door, turn around. I expect it to be gone at this point. It's still sitting there, so I had to tell you that part. I, I forgot it. Yeah. So anyway, uh, anyway, so I, I'm walking uh, back to where I left off. I walk down the driveway, short, very short driveway to the halfway across the street to where the plates of cement, they're separate plates uh, that that touch in the middle of the, of the street. I walk out to that that edge turn to my right and I walk straight down the middle of the road very slowly uh, towards this field and I'm trying to make sure it doesn't take any control over me so I look around the stars, they're all normal and at some point I get to where I'm uh, towards the end of that street and I look up and it's more above me than than beside me and I can see the, the full circle of lights I'm underneath it uh, more than I'm beside it so anyway um, I continue walking. Uh, oh yeah, I almost forgot. Um, it stops, or I stop. It stops in front of me, at the end of this street where the streets t-bond each other, and it uh, it dips the front of the craft down and the back of the craft up, like it's like it's uh, like it's rotating down and up on a on a like a centerpiece mm -hmm. across the craft. And then it it, uh, it uh, tilts back in the opposite direction where the back half is down, the front half is up. And it does this three or four times. And while it's doing this, it's still rotating in a circle. So it looks to me like a, an infinity sign. And I think, well, maybe that's where the Egyptians got the infinity sign. So anyway, yeah. after that ends, uh, I continue moving out into this field. And it's staying with me right beside me, next to me. And when we get out into the field, uh, it keeps going like it's going west. We're, we're moving west into this field. And I stop maybe 15, 20 foot into this field, and it keeps going. And then it stops and moves back in front of me. And I say, I say to it mentally, if you, want to, uh, if you want to come down and take me away, I'm ready to go, but I want you to come down here. I don't want to go further out. I want somebody to see us or you yeah. and me when we leave. Uh -huh. I, want them, I want them to see us. And mentally what I heard was, without hearing any voices, like it was like I was talking to myself, it said, they're not ready yet. And I said, well, if they're not ready yet, maybe I'm not ready yet. And so at that point, the uh, what happens is this black dot uh, moves across. Uh, when it's rotating, instead of seeing a light, I see a black dot. And to this day, I still can't figure out how I can see a black dot on a on a black hole and a black sky. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it don't make I, any sense. 
How did you but see either, that? But I saw this black dot move across where the light was turned yeah. off. It made a full rotation. The black dot was there again. And there was a second black dot, and it made a full rotation with three black dots. And with every rotation, it turned off an extra light until it got to the very last light. And when it got to the eighth light, it was gone. It was no longer there. It didn't shoot off. It was just not present anymore. And when I say it wasn't present, I mean it wasn't just invisible because I could see through it. There were eight. There were three. Excuse me. There were three uh, stars that were sitting within the space which was less than the width of your thumb outstretched. Yeah. Within that space, there were three stars behind it where, where I, that I couldn't see until it was gone. And so uh, then at that point, I'm looking around the sky, and I noticed um, there's no Star Trek episode where these two guys are fighting. One has is black on one, on one side and white on the other side, and the other one is the same, but they're the opposite sides. And so they're like blacks and whites on Earth. They're fighting uh-huh. because, you know, they're different races within the same race, sub-races. Anyway, within that Star Trek episode, there was a, there's a, uh, a scene where uh, two different universes are changing places. And so you see some stars disappearing and some stars appearing. Well, this was happening across the sky, but different. It was similar but different. In, th- in this case, it was like, uh, say, the size of a quarter. I could see like 10 to 20 stars within the space of a quarter or, fi- or a dollar piece. Yeah. And, uh, and all the lights, all the stars within that space would go off simultaneously. And a different set of stars within that same space would come on and they would switch place. And they were switching place back and forth within that size of space that this was happening all across the sky as far as I could see in every direction. And... Uh, and it was kind of playing tricks on my head with the, the effects. And so I, I kneeled down, closed my eyes for uh, 20, 30 seconds, and I opened my eyes back up and got up, and it was still happening. And so I started walking back to my mother's house, and it was happening across the sky as far as I could see in every direction. And when I got back to her house, just before I started to walk up the driveway, I looked around, and all the stars were back to normal. So then I go inside, I tell my mother, she thinks I'm crazy. And then the next day I call Ellington Air Force Base. That was a Saturday night. So I call Ellington on a Sunday, and I, they, I'm patched into the, the, uh, the firehouse. And they say, well, the, the, uh, the tower is closed. It's Sunday. You have to call back tomorrow, Monday, mm-hmm. and it'll be open. Because I ask them, you know, did you see anything? And they say, well, we're, we're, the tower is closed. Call back tomorrow. So I hang up. I call back the next day, two days after the event, on Monday, Tellington Air Force Base. They, I go, when the, the guy picks it up, I'm in the tower. The guy speaking is in the tower, right? And so I ask him, did you, did you got, without telling him anything I saw, I said, did you guys see anything strange on uh, Saturday night? And he goes, no. Where were you? And I tell him where I was, and he says, hold on. And he sets the phone down, and he, I guess he walked over to whoever was looking at the radar in my area, and he comes back and picks up the phone, and I expect him to say, no, we didn't see anything. Instead, he says, uh, we're sorry, we're not allowed to tell you, speak about anything like that uh, to anybody, something like that. I don't yeah. remember the exact words, but he said something that affects me. I, I said to him, you're shitting me. You didn't really see anything, right? You're just, making, you're, you're just playing games, right? And he goes, yeah. He said straight, he said it 
without any hesitation, I'm sorry, but we cannot say anything about that sort of thing. And, uh, and I'm like, I don't, to this day, I don't know if he was just making things up or if he was real. I uh, wrote a letter to uh, Omni Magazine and sent it off in the mail, snail mail. And I didn't expect to hear back from them. Six months later, I get a call. And the reporter says, we want to talk to you about what you sent us, the, you know, your event. Yeah. And so, uh, but in those days, there was no such thing as cheap long distance, except late at night. So she said, I'll call you back after 11 o'clock at night. So mm -hmm. I hang up. She calls me, reporter, reporter calls me back after 11 o'clock that night. And we sit on the phone for like an hour between Houston and New York. And it, it wasn't a free call, but it was cheaper. Yeah. So uh, at the end of the call, she says, I said, are you planning on printing this or what, what are you going to do? He said, yes, we're going to print it. And I said, you have no hesitation? What, you, did somebody verify? Why are you going to print my story when you have no verification? He said, we're definitely going to print it. She wouldn't tell me what kind of verification she had, but she had no hesitation to tell me they're absolutely definitely going to print my story, right? And so... Uh, she said, call back in a couple weeks and I'll tell you what uh, what issue it's going to be in. Mm -hmm. So she gave me her private number, phone number to her house or apartment or whatever it was, and uh, and then hung up. And so two weeks later, I called her her house number. Her husband picks up the phone. He's ang very angry. And I, I say, I need to, I want to speak to her name. And, uh, and he goes, why are you calling? And I said, well, and I explained. It's about a story, and uh, you know I, I give him a very brief explanation. He says, "Do not ever call this number again. If you want to talk to my wife, you have to call her at work." And I said, "What's her work number?" He gives me a work number, and then he hangs up. He said, "Don't ever call this number again." Hangs up. So I call her at work. Her editor picks up the phone, and I say, "I'm not to speak to so and so," and she goes, "She doesn't work here anymore." She still works at Omni, but she doesn't work at this facility anymore. And she won't give me a number where I can reach the girl at. So I'm cut off from reaching her at work. I'm cut off from reaching her at home. The government, I figure, you know, logically speaking, the government said, no, you're not going to print the story. So that's, yeah. you know, because um, basically I have to tell you about my second encounter to really understand how, uh, how odd this whole thing is. Sure. The second encounter happened six months after the first encounter. The first encounter was October 3rd, 1980. After it happened, I'm like, I want to, I want them to come back because I felt like I made a mistake not leaving this planet. And so I want to know when they're going to come back. So I thought, well, maybe they'll come back uh, when the space shuttle launches to see us launch the first reusable spacecraft on Earth. And so uh, I, my father uh, once owned a pre-production uh, fiberglass Corvette before they were ever produced and uh, and cops would stop him and give him a ticket when he wasn't even speeding and just to see the Corvette and so because um, they didn't know what it was and so I thought about that and I said well let me get a the Virago 750 just came out first V twin and it was pretty bike and I said well let me I want to if I buy one of those bikes that'll I can park it on the beach and somebody will see it and they'll, that will get me on the base. And so I'm, uh, uh, one night I, uh, get my car stolen 
and they pay me $1,400 for it. And I have to drop out of college because with that $1,400, I use that to buy the motorcycle. And I go down to see the space shuttle launch. I park it on the beach. A guy walks over, looks at the motorcycle and says, how are you going to, and we're talking, he says, how are you going to watch the shuttle launch? And I said, I have no idea. And so well, I got a pass to get on base. Come with me and we'll, uh, we'll go see it on, on the base. And so what I hoped would happen did happen. And so he took me on base. And while we're uh, on this base, I traveling, it's like 5, 5.30 in the morning, pitch dark. And I have the, the, the uh, desire to tell these people about my first close encounter, the one I just told you about. And so I tell yeah. them the whole story uh, to the end. And when I tell them the last, when I say the last word, out of my, comes out of my mouth, the German uh, passenger, who's a, uh, I guess he's a worker for this fellow, and uh, he laughs at me. And in my, inside my head, I say, God, I wish you would show them what I saw. And then within two seconds, three seconds, uh, a craft that looked exactly like I just described is in front of our vehicle. And uh, it's not vibrating, but otherwise it's exactly what I saw, what I just described. Uh, except for the no vibration, it was, there was no difference between these two craft. And so we're going around this causeway road and we're coming up to this craft. And uh, of course, the first thing the kid said was, maybe that's what he saw. And the driver said, yeah, maybe that's what he saw. And so they both saw it. And then I looked at the, the father who's driving the, the station wagon, his uh, little boy who's the oldest, and his little girl, who's uh, second in age, they're sitting to my left. And there's a little boy who's the youngest behind me, uh, uh, sitting in where you put your luggage, and there's no seat back there. All three, as soon as this thing appeared, it was like all their brains were switched off. They were looking around at everything, but once this thing appeared, yeah. it was like they were shot with a freeze ray. They did not move a muscle, not even their eyes. And um, I guess maybe they weren't the aliens turned off their brains so that they wouldn't have an encounter they weren't prepared to, to have. And so uh, we're, we move under this thing. And it's like maybe if I had gotten out, if we just stopped and, and uh, gotten out of the car, I'm pretty sure I could have thrown a rock and hit this vehicle because it was so low. It was directly over the causeway road. And, and while we're directly underneath it, I stick my head, the top of my head, uh, against the glass which is uh which is kind of uh curved out and i can see the bottom of the craft by looking straight up yeah. and i can see just the edge of it turning as we're directly underneath it and uh, and then when we get past it i'm looking back at it and of course the kids are still frozen and the adults are looking around they're still animated the the, the uh, driver the father and the little uh and his worker, who was his young 20s, and um, they're both still animated, but they, they've they lost all interest in this craft. They're just looking around like normal. Okay. And, but, but they have no interest in it anymore. Ghostly Talk! <laughs>